I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 46th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Earlier this week, on the podcast, we released a two-part podcast on the history of Olympia Fields with historian Bob Topel and golf course architect Andy Staples. Today on the podcast, we take a left turn into the macabre, the story of the gangster of the green, the story of an actual assassin for none other than Al Capone and his Olympia Fields connection. Today on the show, we welcome John Fisher, past president of the Gulf Heritage Society, long-standing member of the USGA Museum and Library Committee, and golf writer for The Morning Read, to share the unbelievable story of machine gun Jack McGurn who quite possibly may be the only hitman ever to play in a major golfing championship. John, thank you so much for joining us on the 46th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Oh, thank you, Connor. I'm glad to uh, join you and look forward to our discussion. You know, before we jump into the story of Jack Machine Gun McGurn and his amazing connection to Olympia Fields and this week's BMW Championship, would it be okay if we talked about your father and your personal connection to golf history? Sure. Uh, your father, John Fisher, also uh, won the Big Ten Individual Championship three times at the University of Michigan and was NCAA Individual Champion in 1932. However, your father was the 1936 U.S. Amateur Champion at Garden City Golf Club, and he kind of became famous for how he won it. That's kind of how people remember uh, your father. Could you elaborate for the listeners what made that uh, 1936 U.S. Am unique from a historical perspective? Well, there, there are two things, really, Connor. Uh, the first is he is the last person to win a major championship playing with hickory shaft and clubs. Uh, most everybody else had shifted to steel, and uh, the USGA believes he was the only player in the field using hickory shaft and clubs, although there were several people still using hickory shaft and putters. His whole set was a hickory set. And uh, I get asked frequently, well, did he keep the clubs? Do you have them? Yeah, I was going to ask you that same question. I I do have them. He kept using them until 1955. Wow. Uh, There was a uh, lady in Tennessee uh, who provided, it was H.W. Milton Company, made ladders, among other things, and they also made hickory shafts. uh, And... When they stopped making them, uh, he had to switch to hicker, uh, from hickory to steel. Uh, the clubs so he, he used were era. Milton's, not Spalding or Tom Stewart. It, they were Milton's. Uh, well, uh, they were Milton shafts, but the uh, heads were varied. Most of them were Stewart heads. Some some were uh, other makers, uh, but. Uh, 
he had picked up a lot of steward heads when he was in Scotland for the Walker Cup. Uh, and there were also a lot of them that were shipped over here to various pros. And at that time, people picked out their clubs sort of one at a time. So it wasn't really a set of clubs. It was a set of uh, 14 uh, different clubs. Yeah. Do you, do you have any stories of how he put that set together? Uh, mainly by uh, touch uh, and by feel. And then at one point after he put them together, uh, he had them check for swing weight, and they all came out to the same swing weight. No way. That's rarity. And, and that was all by feel, correct? I mean, this is, and by, by the way, folks, in the 1920s, 1930s, swing weight just wasn't there. So a lot of players felt it, and he just had that feel to get it. I mean, just nailed it. Yeah, and the funny thing was, uh, in 1955, uh, McGregor's plant was located in Cincinnati. Uh, and so he went down to the plant and picked out a set of uh, woods that were Byron Nelson woods and then Tommy Armour irons for a one iron through the seven iron. Uh, those were blade irons. And then MT cl- uh, clubs for the eight, nine, and wedge. Those were muscle back irons. At that time, it took two days to do it and never hit a golf ball. And, and those came out to be a match set also. So uh, you just had a feel for it that uh, uh, I guess really good players have. Uh, it just, he knew what, it wa- what, he, what he wanted to swing and how the ball would fly. He didn't have to hit the ball to see if the club was going to work. Yeah, there's a misconception for a lot of people in uh, when they think about hickory that they were all really whippy shafts. I'm curious, have you ever checked to see what the, the stiffness of his shafts were? Uh, I, I have not. And at this point in time, there, a lot of them have sort of dried out and cracked. Oh, sure. Uh, the one reason why he kept playing with hickory shafts was originally they were stiffer than the steel shafts. And uh, so they had more torque and that they would twist, but the shaft itself wasn't as whippy as a steel shaft was uh, until true temper started perfecting the step down steel shaft. The steel shaft was heavier if you wanted it to be stiff and so to get a lighter weight club and more speed you ended up with more whip in a steel shafted club so he had sort of he had a reason other than just liking the way kickeries felt they actually in his mind performed better than steel yeah i i think that's one of the most fascinating pieces about history i look back at that transition from Hickory to Steel uh, happened in the really late 1920s and into the 1930s. But those players like Gene Sarazen and uh, Tommy Armour, Armour, who were able to adjust uh, quite quickly to playing steel shafts, because they were it was a totally different type of technology, just like you described. Played completely yes. different. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, my father's swing changed around a little bit uh, when he changed to Hickory had a very, very fast swing with a hickory shaft. He slowed it down a bit with a steel shaft. That's the opposite of what people would think. 
That's what yeah. they, a lot of people don't understand. The, the, the torque was the biggest factor, and that's really a timing issue. But they are, yeah, I, my stiff, I have a set, I have at least one club that was owned by Bob Jones. And it is like, it's stiff. I mean, it's borderline X stiff when you put it up against the steel shaft. But you're right. The torque is completely different. It's a, it makes it a little bit more timing dependent. Yeah, I think the change that my father had to make was because of the torque. Uh, because with the torque and the hickory shaft, you had to really roll the face back to square uh, because of the torque. And with the steel shaft, you had to stop doing that. The the uh, the hit on Jones was that after he switched from hickory to steel, he began fighting a hook because he was always sort of closing the face a little bit. Makes sense. And I have an off-the-wall question about your father's uh, uh, woods. And, and it's probably isn't the case, but I, I've noticed, I've read a couple articles uh, did your father use socket-headed woods or splice-necked? Uh, socket. Okay. I asked. I, I figured it was socket. Most use socket, but uh, obviously Varden, late into his career, used splice. Hagen uses splice-neck, and Jones at least tried custom-made splice-necks for their feel. So I thought I just had to find out, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, I only have two of his woods left. I don't know what happened to the other ones. But they're both sockets, so and one of them is a very early one. Uh, so I I don't know for sure that, but I don't think he ever had spliced heads. I tell you, the next time I'm, I'm in your area, I'm gonna have to see them. Uh, uh, that is, I, I'm so happy that you still have them. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. It really does. <laughs> Well, we have them uh, ready for display. So I love it. Um, your father also played, I think you mentioned this, three Walker Cup teams, and he captained another. Um, did he ever consider going professional? Uh, no, not really. Uh, he. It, it's sort of funny. The rules of golf when he was playing uh, were different on amateur and professional than they are now. And he started off as a caddy. And at that time, when you turned 16, you were considered a professional if you were a caddy. So he stopped caddying. His father uh, was a mailman, and he was determined that my father was going to go to college and get a job. And he didn't consider, my grandfather did not consider uh, playing golf as a job. Uh, that was just something you did for fun. And uh, I also, at the time my father was playing, there wasn't really any money in playing golf. Most all the pros who played in the tournaments also had club jobs. And uh, it, it's not like the tour today. And uh, he ended up becoming a lawyer and uh, a weekend golfer uh, like the rest of us. Oh, that's great. And he captain the Walker Cup team. Yes, he played in 1934. Uh, he was a senior at University of Michigan at the time. And he, uh, to show how seriously he took the Walker Cup, he dropped out of school after the first semester and uh, had a friend who lived in Florida down near Miami. And he spent the winter in Miami playing golf uh, as a guest of his friend, uh, and then went up to go to uh, uh, by boat 
to play in the Walker Cup. Uh, the boat trip is uh, nine days across. Uh, then uh, several weeks of practice. Then the Walker Cup. Then the British Amateur, uh, which by virtue of being on the Walker Cup team, they automatically qualified for. Yeah, you didn't have to play in. That, thank goodness they had that for the Walker Cup players. Yeah. Right. And then, well, the RNA took care of some of that by pairing the Americans against each other in the first round so they could knock out half the team, half of our team. Uh, then he played in 1936 at Pine Valley, and he played in 1938 again at St. Andrews. So he- oh, I, Look at this. I mean, an amateur career that's Garden City, Pine Valley, and St. Andrews are, are some of the main events of, of your career. That's just amazing, isn't it? Yes, and the, the interesting thing about his, uh, his play was that uh, in 1936, the uh, U.S. won all the points. So they actually skunked the British because they didn't give any half points for a half a half match uh, like they do now. And then in 1938, uh, he was on the first American team to lose. But in his... Uh, three times as a player on the Walker Cup. He never lost a match. Wow. That's an amazing accomplishment in and in itself. So when he became a lawyer, did he pretty much just walk away from amateur golf or did he continue to play like, say, Bob Jones? Uh, he, after World War II, he played at Baltimore, or I'm sorry, at Baldus role in the 19... 19- I guess it was 46 amateur, uh, but his hickory clubs were stolen before the tournament, and he played with a makeshift club, and while he qualified for the amateur, he didn't qualify for match play. And so that was the last time he played in a national event. Uh, He played other events from time to time, but uh, uh, nothing big. He he played in an event called the U.S. Celebrity Pro-Am, which was played in Washington, D.C. And interestingly enough, he finished, he was still playing hickory clubs. He finished second to Ben Hogan in that tournament. Wow. Uh, and then there were some regional events he used to play. And there was a, an event called the Tri-State, which was a team event of Ohio and Kentucky and Indiana playing each other and he played in that regularly but he didn't play much competitive golf and i often wanted him to i couldn't understand why he didn't but i never it took me a long time to understand there was a difference between good playing good golf and playing tournament tournament golf, golf. yeah bob jones wrote about that didn't he quitty it's uh and it's so true even today um I just, I love the fact, and I didn't know this before we started talking here, John, I, I didn't realize that he was so loyal to the Hickory Shafted Clubs for so long. I mean, what a rarity playing them into the 1950s. Like, I don't know many people specifically of that talent level that stayed with Hickory Shafts for that long. Yes. Well, and the, the thing was, having been a caddy in his early career, he usually used an old canvas Sunday bag because he didn't want 
the caddies to have to lug around some big leather bag. And uh, I always thought that with a set of hickory clubs and an old canvas bag that he could have made a lot of bets on the first hole. With oh, no more. kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I played hickory clubs for about seven years straight, didn't play moderns. And I would hang out at the uh, my country club, Elm Crest Country Club back in Cedar Rapids. And every once in a while, someone would join me just as a single. And I, every time they'd say, where'd you get those clubs? I'm like, oh, I found them in my grandpa's garage. I thought I'd give them a run. And if we started betting, you know, I'd go out and shoot. You know, I'm a pretty decent player, but I'd go out and shoot 77, 78, you know, and, you know, the average player is shooting 90 next to me. And they're just sitting there with their mouth agape, like, how? What? He's like, you know, they're always like, you could be on the tour if you played modern clubs. And I was only a couple strokes better playing modern clubs. So I, I just, I got a kick out of it. He had to have taken a lot of money off some people over, over the days. Yeah, it's, it's funny uh, because... My dad was invited to play in the Masters tournament from 1934 on, and he never played. He never and played. I kept saying, "Why didn't you play?" And he said, "I couldn't get my game in shape to play, uh, so I couldn't go down there." But also, it was a matter of travel and money, and you know, there wasn't a there wasn't an interstate system. You couldn't fly down there. It's about a two day or three day drive down there if you're taking back roads so it makes sense to me but when i was younger it didn't make any sense at all i thought he should absolutely even now we have to question him <laughs> i mean that's that would have been amazing some of the early masters that would have been fabulous i get well, that though after the war around 1948 he started going to the masters and he went every year except one uh, when he was in the hospital until he uh, died in 1984. Uh, and starting in 1961, he was in charge of setting the course up for the Masters. So he set the tee markers and the pins on the greens. Uh, for the Masters? For, for the Masters from 64 on. And during the war, uh, he was in the Navy and uh, played golf uh, these even in the middle of wartime, the base commanders had teams, and he was stationed in Norfolk. The baseball team looked like an all-star team of baseball players whose names you'd recognize today. And the golf team, the core of the golf team, was my father, Sam Sneed, and Paul Runyon. Yeah, don't uh, don't take bets against that team. And they and, and and I said, boy, that must have been great. He said, well. That was in addition to our regular job. Uh, his com commanding officer loved to play golf, so they would play every morning at seven o'clock, and then they'd go to work at eight thirty. Yes. So, <laughs> did he have hickory clubs during that time? Did he bring his sticks? Yep, he was still playing hickory uh, clubs during the war, and then afterwards, when he started hitting, you know, uh, setting the pins. Uh, they, at that time, I, I don't think they do it anymore, but they used to go out about five 30 in the morning with the weather reports and everything and set the pins then. Uh, and so one year, uh, he, uh, came back and he go down with a group of guys. They picked up the newspaper after the first day and the headline said, uh, it was a quote from Sam Sneed, 
a blind man must have set the pencils today. <laughs> and uh, all his friends were saying, I thought Sam Sneed was your friend. That is <laughs> too good. He was. But <laughs> so was, was your father a member at Augusta? Uh, yeah, he became a member about 1965. Okay, I, that makes sense because I, I can't imagine they're just, you know, Having your your dad come in to set the pins uh, randomly without being a member. Yeah, well, uh, it was funny because uh, he had a friend, an older man, uh, uh, much older than he, who was a successful businessman who wanted to help my father. And so in the summers, when uh, uh, my dad was out of school, he hired him to work for his company, and uh, he lived in, uh, in Boston, but he kept an office in Cape Cod. And so my father went to Cape Cod uh, and worked for this guy, and his schedule was set up so he could have the afternoon from 2 o'clock on uh, free to play golf and work on his game. And uh, one of the people he played with on a regular basis was a broker who was on uh, lived on Cape Cod at the time, uh, and that was Clifford Roberts. Yeah, and so he played with Clifford Roberts a lot. Wow! Uh, and that's how he got involved in the in the Masters. And he also also knew Bob Jones because Jones went to the Amateur every year as a spectator or an official or something. But uh, he got to know him pretty well and. As a matter of fact, in 1936, when my father won the Open at Garden City, they were just starting Life Magazine, and so they, Life Magazine hired Grantland Wright Rice, the uh, most famous sports writer of the time, to write the story, and they hired Bob Jones to give a Jones Eye view of the tournament, and they gave Jones a Leica camera. And he went around and photographed a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I've seen those. Uh, Joe Howard is a former president of Garden City, and he actually showed me some of Bob Jones' photos when I was at Garden City uh, last year. And they're oh, actually really? great photographs. I, I have a copy of the uh, story out of Life magazine, but not the magazine itself. Uh, it was on up for auction. And it was an edition of Life magazine that was not published for the general public, but it was set up like a magazine to show to advertisers what it was going to look like. So it had all these fake ads in it that were pulled out of Time magazine and re rearranged in this fake copy of uh, or, or practice copy. I think it was called Rehearsal. Uh, and it was uh, uh, on sale or an auction. I couldn't afford the bidding started at five thousand dollars. I'm I'm told it sold for fifty thousand dollars. Oh wow! <laughs> Either of that, it was out of my ballpark. Right, out of a lot of ballparks, I'd say. <laughs> so I mean, I, that these stories alone are fascinating. Uh, before we dive into the story today, uh, did your dad know the story that we're about ready to talk about? No, yeah, uh, he did play in that 1933. Western Open, and he finished his second low amateur. Uh, he's one stroke off being low amateur. Uh, 
and he played in the Western Open uh, as one of his regular events during the 30s because it was played around the Midwest, basically, and he, and he could get to it. And he was three, he was uh, low amateur three times in the Western Open. Uh, so he played in this one in 1933, but he never mentioned Jack McGurn or what happened. So. so he was there. I mean, he had to have known. I mean, that was front page news. That was insane news, but he never mentioned it. No, never mentioned it. Interesting. I don't know. He's, he was, when he played golf, he concentrated on what he was playing. And when he was engaged to my mother, she followed him around in some tournament. And he, she said to him, well, I, I followed you all around and you never said anything. He said, I never noticed you were there. <laughs> I like your dad. <laughs> when he played, he didn't, he was very quiet. So he was Hogan-esque in that regard. Yeah, about the last 10 years of his life, he opened up more uh, playing, and but he really played only with his friends and uh, really didn't like to play with people he didn't know very well because he just wanted to have a good time and enjoy the company he'd grown up with. Fascinating. So, John, I read your article in the Morning Read, and we put this podcast together in very short order because it's not only timely, but it's just a marvelous story. What do we know about Jack McGurn before he became connected with Al Capone? Uh, we don't know a whole lot. We know that he came from Sicily uh, with his uh, parents, that they were uh, in New York for a while and then went to uh, Chicago. Uh, his father died and his mother remarried. Uh, and at some point, uh, he, uh, as a boy, he had worked uh, on the docks as a stevedore. So uh, he was very strong. Uh, he became a prize fighter. His real name was Vincenzo Gibaldi. Yeah, I was going to say, McGurn, it's not very Sicilian. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm not really familiar with all the backgrounds of where these names came from. Uh, he went by Vincent Gabardi for a while, and then when he got into prize fighting, uh, he decided that the Italian boxers got, I'm sorry, the Irish boxers got better uh, bouts than the Italians and Sicilians did. So he went under the name of Jack McGurn, uh, which stuck with him. Uh, so uh, in the sports pages for a while, he was Jack McGurn. Uh, at some point while he was boxing, he got tied up with Al Capone, uh, and he was in the bootlegging business uh, with him. His father had been a bootlegger uh, in that he supplied, he had a grocery store, and that was used as a front to supply sugar to the bookmakers. And then he also, with his delivery trucks for the grocery store, used to deliver uh, illegal liquor to the clubs and speakeasies that uh, were the purchasers. Yeah, so we don't really know how he got connected with Capone, correct? Somehow he got connected with Obviously Capone, bootlegging. probably yeah. through his stepfather. What did he do for Al Capone? 
it's not clear what all he did in the beginning. He uh, was, I guess you call muscle, uh, an enforcer, a guy that persuaded people to buy from Al Capone and not from someone else. But somewhere along the line, he was uh, noted of being handy with a gun, and he was very, very smart. Uh, he wasn't some uh, sort of dumb guy off the docks. Uh, he was a smart guy, and he got the job of taking out rivals uh, to Al Capone's group that was known as the Outfit. So he was literally a hitman. That's fair to say, right? Yeah, and but he planned everything very carefully. Uh, if he was supposed to take somebody out, he would stalk them, follow them, sometimes even rent a room across the street from where they were, know what their routine was, what their habits were, and then he would uh, basically kill them in a way that it was private. There weren't any witnesses. He didn't want to kill innocent people. Uh, it was sort of a funny thing. They, they were very protective of people who weren't involved with the uh, gangs. They didn't mind killing each other, but they didn't kill other people. He was very good at it. And uh, I counted up, I read a, a very interesting uh, biography of uh, Jack McGurn called Deadly Valentines, uh, written by a guy named Jeffrey Gusfield. Uh, and uh, I counted up at least 25 people he was uh, pretty well believed to have taken out. And that didn't count the people at the uh, uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre. Yeah, maybe jump into that. Um, I, we have uh, listeners from all over the world. Uh, and I know there's some speculation that Jack McGurn was involved with the infamous, maybe planned the infamous St. Valentine's Day massacre. For those listeners overseas who may be unaware of that historic Chicago gangland story, could you refresh them? Well, one of the rival gangs uh, to Al Capone's gang was run by uh, uh, Bugsy Moran. And uh, they decided to take the leadership of the gang out and somehow arranged for a meeting at a garage in Chicago. And what they did was really pretty clever. Uh, Capone's guys pulled up two of them in police uniforms and two of them in regular uh, business suits with long overcoats uh, in a police car. They go down in the garage and announce themselves as the police. They have these guys line up against the wall facing the wall and they pull out their machine guns and kill them all. Uh, it was a great massacre in terms of numbers, uh, the audacity of it. Uh, then after they'd shot the guys, the guys in the overcoats took the guns or I'm sorry, the policemen took the guns and marched the guys with the overcoats on back to the car. Like they'd arrested them and told people, be more police here. We're taking these guys in. We caught the killers. They get in the fake police car and drive off. 
And the idea is that kind of handiwork, that intelligence to plan that, had Jack McGurn's signature all over it. It did. He was the guy who was the brains, uh, a smart guy, and Capone trusted him. He became Capone's uh, personal bodyguard. Uh, but uh, uh, he was he went with Capone to baseball games and events and everything. There are pictures of him sitting behind Capone and Capone's son, and he's got his hand in his inside pocket of his jacket, pretty clearly on a weapon, just in case he has to pull it out. But not a machine gun, correct? Uh, no, actually, he didn't use a machine gun very often. Interesting. There was one, and there was a raid on his house one time, and they found a machine gun there. Uh, it was called a Sentry. It was a Thompson machine gun that took 100 bullets and had the nickname of Sentry. And that was used by other mob members, but he didn't like it. Uh, he thought it was too noisy. He thought it was too, uh, but, uh, it drew too much attention. He, he usually used a 38 pistol or a 45 automatic. And part of his scheme uh, was uh, to, after the shooting, he would drop the gun and leave it. Uh, mainly so he wouldn't be caught with a gun that could be traced back. But this, this was an early day of forensics, and uh, there, there really weren't people who knew how to match up bullets and guns and fingerprints. It was, it was all pretty new at the time, but that was one of his trademarks. And uh, his father, <clears throat> I'm sorry, his stepfather, who was murdered, was called a nickel and dime man by his murderers meaning sort of he was nothing in the, in the group. And it was said that uh, McGurn always left a nickel in the hand of the person he killed so they'd know who did it. Oh, wow. Uh, but That's that, dark. That's uh, maybe more of a question yeah. for real. I don't think I'll ever look at a nickel the same now. You know, John, you said uh, it, everyone seemed to know that McGurn planned uh, the St. Valentine's Day uh, massacre. He was clearly a suspect. How did he elude arrest in prison time for that? He had an alibi. He was in a hotel room for Valentine's Day with his girlfriend, and she swore under oath that she was with him, and they couldn't prove he wasn't. And whether she was believable or not, uh, she became known in the newspapers as the blonde alibi. <laughs> and, uh, so Not bad. It, and he eventually married the blonde alibi, mainly because in their desperation to get him, they charged him with a violation of the Mann Act because he took uh, his girlfriend to Florida, thereby taking an underage woman across state lines for what they said were immoral purposes. But he beat that rap uh, by uh, marrying uh, 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 his girlfriend. But that case went to the U.S. Supreme Court. who said, you know, whatever he did, he corrected it when he married her. So there's no crime. So unlike component income taxes, he found his loophole. He found his loophole and they never went after him, uh, to my knowledge, 
on the income taxes, although he must have been a suspect. He drove fancy cars, a Lincoln and things like that. And he bought a house in Oak Park, uh, lived the high life, going to nightclubs. And his wife loved uh, jazz music. So they were in on the Chicago jazz scene regularly. And uh, he just would have caught the eye, but Capone was such a big guy and controlled so much. I, I had read at one point that his take in 1929 was $300 million that the Capone outfit earned. Uh, they, they not only were into to, uh, selling illegal liquor, uh, but they controlled the laundry business. Uh, and the laundry business was basically a business at the time that was run individually. And they organized and sold protection to the uh, laundry people and made money on everything that was washed in the city of uh, Chicago. So literally laundering money. Yeah, laundering money. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And through all this, Jack Machine Gun McGurn was a golfer. How does one go from hitman to golf pro? Walk us through the timeline of shooting mobsters to shooting under par. Well, it's sort of odd. Al Capone played a little bit of golf. A lot of his henchmen played golf. And so McGurn played. And I'm not sure if that's how he started or not. But he did play golf with these guys at uh, public course. The one they played at most of the time was Evergreen, uh, which is a little suburb of Chicago, uh, a a privately owned uh, daily fee course wasn't a club in any sense, but it was their hangout for playing golf. And they liked to play golf and have big bets uh, and bets for a lot of money, like $10,000, which today would be like $150,000. So the guys at the top had a lot of cash and uh, they liked to gamble. They played the horses, they bet on boxing, they fixed horse races, golfing, or uh, uh, boxing matches. And then they played golf against each other. Uh, for all I know, they tried to fix golf tournaments, but, uh, I don't yeah. know that you don't know. Right. Uh, he, he was a little bit, I think you mentioned this flamboyant. Uh, you, you reported in your story, the Chicago times reported him dead in 1933. And there was a group of, uh, reporters waiting outside his house when he showed up alive. Uh, do you have that, qu- that, uh, quote, that he gave them about uh, showing up, <laughs> showing up well, alive. He had sort of. Uh, this was the time uh, when Capone had been convicted of tax evasion and gone to prison, and everyone was laying low. They tried to keep out of the newspapers. Uh, the prohibition was ending. Uh, they went to other businesses like union racketeering and things like that, where they could make money but it not be as visible. And at one point, one of the newspapers uh, reported that McGurn had been killed. And so the reporters went to his house out in Oak Park, and they're waiting there, and he pulls up in his car, and there he is. And they said, well, we thought you were killed. And he said, well, did you ever hear of a ghost shooting 66? And uh, (laughs) so he had been off playing golf that day. They just got the facts wrong. But 
he was serious about it, and uh, he had a friend who was a member at Oak Park Country Club, and he took uh, McGurn arranged with his friend, uh, who told the pro out there, I have a friend who's going to come out and play some golf. If I'm not with him, just charge me as uh, being the, uh, his being my guest, and anything else he needs, give him. And so uh, I don't know who that individual was. But McGurn took advantage of that, and the pro at Oak Park Country Club at the time was Horton Smith. Oh, wow. And Horton Smith would go on to win two Masters Absolutely. tournaments. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, McGurn took lessons from him, and Horton Smith said he never understood it for quite a while because he knew him as, Jack, uh, as Vincent Gabardi. So he did, not- you don't think Horton Smith knew who he's giving lessons to? Yeah, he didn't know who he was. Interesting. Didn't know it was yeah. you know, Jack McGurn or Machine Gun Jack was all over the papers for years. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, this is a couple years before Horton Smith wins the Masters. Uh, yes, uh, uh, that would have been 34 when he won the first Masters. Yeah, so this is 33, 32, 31, somewhere around there, right? Yeah, unbelievable. And so he gives uh, uh, McGurn these lessons, and he notes that, McGurn always comes with another guy uh, who's carrying a golf bag. And so Orton Smith says, the other guy, you want to hit some uh, uh, shots here with us? And uh, McGurn says, nah, he's just watching. Uh, And that's what he was doing. He was McGurn's bodyguard. And Orton Smith discovered that the golf bag was full of guns. No way. What? So he starts making excuses why he can't. This wasn't even in the story. This is amazing. He said, Horton Smith said the practice field was right along the side of a main road. And uh, he didn't like sitting out there thinking they might come by in a car. Yeah, drive by shooting. Decide to, you know, blast all of them. So he stopped giving McGurn lessons. But he did say he was a very affable person very uh, athletic. He liked him. He thought he was a great guy and he was a very good golfer and he was improving his game. And uh, he was shocked to find out who this Vincent Gabardi was. He was yeah. actually Jack McGurn. Hitman. So he's, he's sharpening his skills uh, for a good year. Share the story. And I just think this is an amazing story. Um, he qualifies and he gets into the 1933 Western Open at Olympia Fields. Please tell us that story. Well, yeah, he decided actually in the back of his mind, uh, according to his biographer, was that he would turn golf pro because uh, he was beating all his friends at the local courses and that. And he thought he'd finally reached the top. So he goes and gets in the Western Open uh, being played at Olympia Fields. And he's he's not going by McGurn, correct? Just so everyone knows. No, he's not going by McGurn. He's using the name Vincent Gabardi. Uh, and as it turns out, he's used a lot of names and aliases over his career. And the chief of detectives uh, in the Chicago Police Department uh, is also a golfer. And so he gets the newspaper and sees the names of the, uh, the players and their scores in the newspaper. And he says, this Vincent uh, Gabardi must be Jack McGurn. 
and the city of Chicago had passed a vagrancy law because they were having difficulty convicting these uh, uh, criminals in the outfit. And a, a vagrancy law said if you couldn't show proof of income as to how you were living, you were a vagrant and could be thrown in jail. Wow. Civil rights be darned, right? <laughs> yeah. So the detective goes and gets a warrant from a judge. and It's the second day of the tournament. So going into this, McGurn is listed at number four of the public enemies list. And That's he's right. competing in the Western Open at Olympia Fields with the likes of Walter Hagen, Gene Saracen, and John Fisher. It's just, it's incredible. <laughs> he's out there with the pros playing what many people, you know, still consider a major championship up until the start of the Masters. And it's yeah. the second day. It's, it's probably the number two tournament in the, in the country at the time. And there he is playing. And uh, I, uh, I don't know how they seated people or put them together, but uh, he ends up playing with another uh, person who's a professional. He enters himself as, as uh, the professional from Evergreen Golf Course, uh, which is where he played all the time. Uh, but he wasn't the professional there. A professional hitman, to be fair, he was. <laughs> so there he is on the golf course, and uh, he's finished the sixth hole. He's now one under par for the day, and uh, the police show up, uh, station a bunch of uniformed officers in the around the clubhouse in the 18th green, and... Uh, go out and serve him with this warrant and uh, while he's playing read it out loud on the uh on the golf course to him and so he he turns to him and says look i'm in the middle of a tournament i wanted her par uh would you mind if i finish playing the nerve the nerve of this guy hitman saying no thank you i gotta finish my round so he goes ahead and uh they let us they let He's him with, do it uh, with his wife, uh, the blonde alibi, uh, Louise Rolf, and uh, he's paired with a guy from uh, 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 from Beecher, Illinois, nearby Chicago. His name's Howard Holtman, and he keeps playing on uh, the group in front of him. One of the guys drops out. And so they make the guy who's playing single join McGurn and and Holtman and make it a threesome, and they play in. The the guy they had join them was a lawyer who was head of the bar association. So now now they're playing this threesome in. Uh, they keep taking his picture. Uh, McGurn uh, gets uh, in an argument with a photographer. Uh, altercation because uh, he's taken too many pictures and clicking the lens uh, the camera and they don't get in a physical fight uh, but they have this altercation and then Jack's game sort of falls apart uh, he takes an 11 uh, after a double bogey and his game's gone but he finishes the round uh, he gets in uh, uh, there's a great story that was published that I'm sure isn't true but uh, it was said that McGurn asked his caddy after the warrant was read, 
what what do I use here? And the caddy is said to have replied, use your number one lawyer, sir. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was yeah, paid off. No way a it's caddy says that to a hitman, but I love the story. <laughs> but it's good press. Absolutely. Uh, so they get back, and uh, he's... Uh, uh, McGurn is mad because now there are a bunch of press people around and he tells the photographer he try, who's trying to take a picture if you try to take this picture I'm going to take this camera and bash, and bash your head in with it so the photographer steps back and then the police let McGurn and his wife drive their car to the police station and the, with two policemen tucked in the rumble seat of this uh, fancy roadster he's got. And they go to the police station and book him, but uh, he he never serves any time for it because of the vagrancy law uh, uh, under which he was convicted. He appealed, and uh, Illinois Supreme Court said it was uh, too vague. You had to prove somebody was a criminal. You just couldn't say they were and throw them in jail. So he doesn't do that. He never served any time more than a couple of times overnight while he was waiting for bail. So you have you have this you have literally a hitman playing yes. in the nineteen thirty three Western Open at Olympia Fields, which this week folks were playing the BMW championship, which is uh, essentially an ancestor of uh, the Western Open, and it's being played at Olympia Fields. How did right. Olympia Fields feel about this arrest occurring on the fairways during the second round of the Western Open? Well, the Western or the the Olympia Fields people were furious uh, because they thought that the uh, arrest should have been made before the round started, uh, preferably off the golf course, and they couldn't understand why they went out and, and arrested him in the middle of the round and. Uh, uh, were very critical of how the police handled it. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, the judge he had uh, came under question by McGurn's attorneys because the judge had played golf with McGurn at Evergreen Golf Course. Only Chicago, folks. Only and Chicago. So <laughs> he, he didn't uh, uh, recuse himself from the case or anything. He said that when he realized who McGurn was, he walked off the golf course. That was his explanation, but it never explained what he was doing, playing at a mob hangout yeah, to begin with. With a, a man who may or may not have killed 25 people. Yeah. And it's sort of surprising when you think about it for the police to go out and arrest somebody who's got the nickname Machine Gun Jack on the golf course. They didn't know whether he was armed or not. I mean, according to uh, Horton Smith, he probably had a ton of guns in that golf bag. <laughs> <laughs> they they, uh, they didn't find any clubs with him. They searched his wife's purse. She didn't have any uh, gun or weapon in her purse. He probably, let's face it, he dropped it in the rough, right? <laughs> he might have. <laughs> that would have been another. If you're one playing Olympia Fields that. North Course, uh, maybe Bryson DeChambeau were talking to you. Uh, if you see a gun in the fairway that's, you know, looks like it's from the 1930s, just leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and oddly enough, uh, his uh, wife Louise played golf too, and earlier that summer she had played in the women's Western Amateur. So, 
they were a golfing couple. Golfing couple. Yes. Um, what? So he got off free. He didn't do any jail time at all. I mean, despite you know hitman and and the vagrancy. Uh, what happened to Jack Machine Gun McGurn? I mean, he got off free, but he didn't last very long, did he? After that. Well, things have changed. Uh, there was a new boss of the outfit, Frank Nitty. Uh, if you ever watched that old show uh, on TV, The Untouchables, or the movie The Untouchables, Frank Nitty is a, another well-known gang personality, and he and McGurn never got along very well, so he sort of got pushed aside. Uh, he was still involved. He uh, was a a bookie for prize fights and horse races and stuff like that. And he owned a restaurant, which, uh, uh, burned down. It wasn't clear whether that was one of his enemies who burned it down or it was just a fire. Uh, but he had less activity. He wasn't a hitman anymore. He wasn't making the kind of money he used to make. Uh, he started drinking heavily and apparently started, telling stories about the people in the outfit that uh, weren't supposed to be told. And so on uh, St. Valentine's Day in 1936, he went bowling with a friend, and uh, a little after midnight, three guys came in the bowling alley uh, and uh, started shooting in the ceiling and saying, this is a stick-up. Most people ducked to the ground. Uh, someone walked up, uh, one of the three guys came up to McGurn and shot him in the back of the head and killed him instantly. Um, and, uh, there were 20 people at the bowling alley who developed a collective case of Chicago amnesia. Uh, nobody saw anything, uh, and the killers left a Valentine's day card with McGurn's name on it at the reception desk of the bowling alley. Uh, and they were never found. Wow. So do you think that's, uh, let me ask you this question as a sidebar. It's really just a, um, perhaps an unknown, but is it, do you consider it a coincidence that he was killed essentially on the anniversary of the Valentine's day massacre? Or was that additionally poetic justice from, or mob justice, if you will? I think it was planned mob justice. I think it was a way of their showing that he was the guy who'd planned it and uh, they wanted it publicized and uh, they killed him and uh, uh, later killed his brother uh, who was in the outfit too, but uh, not, not a big, very big star the way Jack was. His wife lived to be 88 and lived out in California and uh, I don't know if you remember many years ago, Geraldo Rivera had a TV special that oh, lasted no. about two Not the hours. Vault. Not where the They vault. were going to open the safe that was out the phone safe. No, no. But he, he, he interviewed Jack McGurn's wife in that TV show, and she didn't say a thing. The only thing she ever said was, When you're with Jack, you're never bored. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, John, you know, thank you so much for joining us on the 46th episode of the Talking Golf History podcast and sharing this delightfully wicked story 
about the hitman of the fairways, Jack Machine Gun McGurn. You know, it's a story I promise I am never going to forget. And for the rest of my years, this kind, this is the kind of story that just never leaves you. Well, I think that's uh, true. And uh, if you're watching the BMW, uh, watch the sixth hole and see if anything happens this year, like it did in 1933. That's right. Who are they going to come get? Right? I just, it's an amazing story. I mean, the the fact that they decide to arrest him on the sixth hole is perhaps less amazing. The fact that they let him finish his round. Yeah, <laughs> they I let did. him finish his round. I mean, with you know police detail basically following him through every hole and just watching him explode. I mean, who doesn't explode knowing that you're going to be hauled off the golf course in front of the press afterward? I The only explanation I have is they were trying to keep it uh, uh, to be as least disruptive as it could be. Uh, you know, they could have had a big scene trying to handcuff him. And I think this way they thought they were going to you know, just take him in and nobody would know. And of course it didn't work out that way, but at least there wasn't some kind of big scene where they were struggling together. And who knows, he might've been armed and, you know, shot somebody, but absolutely. Uh, John, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really enjoyed this uh, jaunt down the pass specifically with, uh, like I said, the BMW championship, uh, the PGA tour at Olympia fields this week. Well, thank you, Connor. I've really enjoyed it. You know, folks, one of the major benefits of the Society of Golf Historians private Facebook page is hearing stories just like this one from historians from around the world. The Gangster on the Green was brought to you by John Fisher and his column in the Morning Read. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Connor T. Lewis.